coming together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. To resist bot live. Good afternoon. It is Sunday, February 27th, 2022. I'm your moderator, Melanie Dion, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome, everybody. I uh, just want to remind you that we are here today, like we are every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern, talking about the issues that affect us and our neighbors. We're live streamed on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and Twitch. If you're listening to us through podcast land, welcome. You can join the conversation by using the hashtag LiveBotters. And if you would like to subscribe to our podcast, you can go to resistbot.live and find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. So this week, I'm reminded of being in seventh grade and we had current events. And every week we would discuss, I would have to watch the news and give my seventh grade take on what was going on in the world. For me in seventh grade, and I've said this before because it had a huge impact on me, it was the events in Tiananmen Square. So now I'm thinking, what will today's seventh graders talk about in their current events? Will it be the nomination of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the first Black woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court? Will it be Governor Abbott's attack on the families of trans children in Texas? Or will it be Russia's attack on the Ukraine? So this week, we're going to talk about all of those things because there are times where I have just as much understanding about the ways of the world as I did when I was 12. So I'm going to start bringing up my all-girl band, and it will be us talking about how the issues affect us and, and, and our take on those things. So first, I'm going to bring up Athena Foule. Good morning, afternoon. Good day, Resist Botters. This is Athena calling in from Houston, Texas. How's it going, Mom? Long time listener, first time caller? Yes, exactly. I'd like to dedicate a song. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. I'll be in the comments as usual, folks. So go ahead and drop in your thoughts, ideas, and questions, and I will bring them to the panel accordingly. And this is definitely one we are looking for comments on because we're all learning, trying to figure things out, and, and at times just frustrated. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to get our heads around, but as we continue to talk about these topics, I think we're going to see certain themes emerging across all three of them that I think are very much in line with what we're trying to do with this podcast and just uncover what some of the existing tensions and reasons are behind this concept of sovereignty and representation and what happens when you let bullies get away with bullying. That lack of accountability is basically playing out at a global stage today. I look forward to just talking through some things, sharing some ideas, and finding ways to uh, address this as we can through the Resist platform. Absolutely. Thanks, Athena. We're always looking forward to what you bring to the discussion. And we are going to bring up our international woman of mystery, Christine Liu. Hi, Christine. Always feel a little pressured when you add that mystery. It's like, am I really that mysterious? I don't know. <laughs> but it's good to be here. Yeah, you know, when you were talking, uh, it really made me think it's like we are all back to a period this week when I remember, right, being in grade school. And then the lens as a mom, I've been talking to my son all week about this because he's a teenager and he's going to class and they're discussing it. And then we unpack it in car rides home. And I, I realized that my son realized just last night that I was alive during the Cold War era. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. But it, it's a, it's an opportunity this week to reflect on like a lot of things going on. And as I was saying, I really appreciate the format of the show because when you are alone, isolated, working from home, consuming this constant barrage of news, it's sometimes good to take a step back and know, are other people at the point of their understandings also reacting in the way I'm reacting or feeling or what kind of information or perspective am I missing? So I'm really looking forward to hearing that today and contributing to that. Thank Absolutely. You. That's an excellent point in how we don't have, like the water cooler was a very important part of discussions like these prior to, to COVID. Now that a lot more of us are a little more isolated, that is a difference in how, I know it has make, made a difference in how I process all of this. That's a really good point. Thanks, Christine. And last but not least, 
Susan Stutz. Hi, Susan. Hello, everyone. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm happy to learn more about the Ukraine. With everything that's been in the news, it's really hammered home for me how much I don't know about the history and all that has come before that has led Russia and Ukraine to this moment. So I'm I'm really looking forward to this discussion and learning about that a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think I'm the same. And not only that, but looking back at the previous administration, where all of those things where we knew they meant something, but we didn't completely get, even when we knew it was bad and insidious then, and I was acutely aware of it, looking at it playing out now, it feels even darker than I expected it to be. And I I, I don't think I'm the only person. I agree with that 100%. Even when you get the sense that something is wrong, that's unless you have a crystal ball, you you just really don't know. So let's kick it off. We are going to talk about Judge Katanji Brown Jackson, who I keep wanting to call Katanji Jackson Brown because my dad was a hippie. So <laughs> Jackson Brown, a singer. Yeah, no, but it's Judge Katanji Brown Jackson is the first black woman nominated to the Supreme Court. Overdue. Overdue. Like, so I started doing a little digging as I am known to do. And I realized that women have been getting shortlisted for the Supreme Court since the 1930s. Since the 1930s. We did not have anyone who made it past the shortlist. We didn't have anyone who went from shortlist to bench until Sandra Day O'Connor in 1981. Where we 40, 41 years after that, and we are finally, finally getting the first Black woman nominee, which is, you know, Joe Biden taking the first step to uphold the promise that he made during his campaign to put a Black woman on the bench in SCOTUS. Feelings? Thoughts? I mean, I know y'all know, or to an extent, you know what my thoughts are, but I would like to hear from everyone else first. Um, We can start with you, Christine. So, I mean, for me, feeling your sentiments also, I think it's long overdue. Uh, And then immediately I go into, and I can't help myself, I go into what is the reaction of everybody else and how difficult is it for someone so accomplished in this climate, political climate, how difficult will it be for her to get, I guess, approved? And what is she going to have to go through? I mean, just the last couple of confirmations, just the detentions, that's just where it's sitting for me. You would think that it would be something that would be a smooth process, but I don't, just based on what we're seeing, I don't think it is. So I've been a Black woman my whole life, so I can tell you no. <laughs> it's, it's, and, and that's, but, but that's a, I'll let everyone else go. <laughs> Having said that, I think it's nothing she's not prepared for. So there's that. Absolutely. Susan, Susan. You know, when I've been thinking about her nomination, I keep recalling an interview that I once saw with Neil deGrasse Tyson when they interviewed him when he was in college about a solar flare that was taking place. And he didn't want to do the interview for whatever reason, I don't remember. But then he thought to himself, if we want more men of color, women of color in science, then they need to see men and women of color in science. And so I keep thinking about that and what her nomination and what her position on the court will mean for young women, but more importantly, young women of color, you know, to see themselves in that position and know that it's possible. And that for me is one of the most important aspects. Absolutely. We deal with the twice or twice as hard to get half as far dynamic here. So it's very, um, it's weighty. It's a heady thing to kind of to, to take in. Athena, <laughs> I'm sure you have thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts. I always do. I have a lot of opinions, I should say. So first and foremost, yes, there's the whole see it, be it element of this. Biden has committed to making sure that, or has committed to trying to align SCOTUS and the judiciary with people that resemble what America looks like. So yes, this is a point of, this is a campaign promise that he is actually attempting to fulfill. But at the same time, to with the points of both Susan and Christine, it's this idea that you have to do, and what you said, you have to do twice as much to get half as far. And the fact of the matter is, she's a public defender, one of only two who will be able to, has been nominated or might be seated. She's one of two who was born in DC. I'm just going to continue to plug in the fact that it's ridiculous that a Senate that's confirming this SCOTUS appointee 
does not have a representative from the place where she is born, DC statehood, plug there. And I think overall, her nomination selection process to even the DC court circuit has been an interesting play of understanding the DC or federal politics or judiciary politics, at least. You have this person who received bipartisan support because of a familiar relation to Paul Ryan. Not That's not the only reason why, but that did grease the wheels a little bit to get her uh, past the round to get to the, the DC circuit. So it's this idea now that, again, Ski, Collins, and Graham have the country by our proverbial cojones because they may or may not find her suitable for this role that she has her whole life been in many ways prepared for, preparing for. Lindsey Graham is very concerned now about the Harvard Yale SCOTUS pipeline. hundred percent. And the irony of that being Kavanaugh's Yale as well. So like it, again, we're back to this idea that some of those restrictions apply to some people. Harvard Yale pipeline didn't seem to matter when Kavanaugh was being nominated. Her 51 year old self, 50 wasn't a problem for Amy Barrett to get nominated too. So Again, it's these hurdles or these obstacles that are being put in place. These factors that seem to have been looked over for other people. Can't imagine why, but that is going to be things that she'll be facing. So it'll be very interesting. We also have Romney. We'll see what Romney votes in this too. So whatever it is, it, it, it will be definitely an interesting committee to watch process. Absolutely. One of the things that has been sitting with me just in the makeup, especially as we've been talking a lot about justice and what that looks like in this country is that we have only had two, or for now, we've only had one person to sit on the bench who has any experience with defending poor people. So when you think about what the makeup is of this country, even just financially, when you think about how imbalanced that is and dealing with people who are not in touch with the full breadth of the judicial system, or at the very least, the body does not have that full breadth. That's mind blowing to me. Then when you get to the fact that the only one was Thurgood Marshall, who was the first Black man to sit on the bench, and the second one, even though Thurgood Marshall represented poor Black people, he wasn't a public defender, she will be the first public defender. She will be the first public defender in the history of the Supreme Court. And second trial judge, and we're looking at, when we look at the, the cases that they have to look at, it, it's so telling about what who this justice system is meant to serve, because that's not even something that people consider. And when you see that it's only a consideration or the only people that we get that from or Black people, that is a huge indictment on what justice in this country looks like. I was just going to say, I also appreciate the spectrum and breadth of experience that she brings. I don't know how many other SCOTUS judges have had family in law enforcement or family in the military or family who've been in prison yeah. because of charges. And so I think having all of that experience shapes her jurisprudence. So absolutely, it's a different way of looking at things. And I think that's very much needed. And she clerked for Breyer, I think. I believe that was the case. So she's mm-hmm. she's risen up the ranks and has honed her craft. And I think we all know that we feel she's qualified. It's just really a matter of like what the process will do to her by the end of it all. Yeah. And that's one of those things that we can't ignore as women. I can't ignore as a Black woman. I know those there. there's just a different light that's cast on you. The conversation that we can be having of all of the firsts that she's bringing to the table, once you get past the infuriation of this, the the number of firsts, you look at how accomplished she is. And then the conversation comes to, well, you know, her husband's twin brother is married to Paul Ryan's whatever. It's absurd. So you already see the, the tiny little nitpicking things and just a glimpse of what can be expected at the confirmation hearing. This is a, this is without people who are actively digging to discredit her. This is just kind of the beginning of what we are to expect and just the type of light that women and specifically Black women undergo when there's a dare for visibility. There's a dare for ambition. It's one of those, you know, my the old Southern in me is going to hold her up in prayer and then also be very logical because I don't think there's a, I don't see a value in standing <laughs> judges and politicians and, you know, these are people. But I also know that she is, again, she is a person and should be dealt with with a consideration of her humanity that 
I have yet to see leveled out on a consistent basis for Black women. It's a lot of feelings, a lot of feelings that come up with this. And I imagine that the there'll be less of or more of that theater during these confirmation hearings, really taking a hammer to her with all of the, the various connections she has to people like us not just the 1% of the country. So I that theater is going to be amazing because we haven't had it before, not to this extent. And to her credit, she's already gone through confirmation hearings before, so she's not a rookie there. And I think that was definitely one of the things that that pushed her over as, as into being the nominee. It's like Christine said before, it's not anything that it's not necessarily anything that she won't be able to handle. It's just kind of a damn shame that she'll have to handle it, you know? Like it hasn't even started yet. And we all know that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we all know what's coming. Right. Mm-hmm. It's so predictable. Absolutely. Our We're going to shift on to our next topic with the gift that keeps on giving when Ron DeSantis doesn't give us any, his, any of his nonsense. Greg Abbott is always there to answer the call. You can count on him. Tyrant's going to tyrant. Oh my goodness. It's like they're in a race. And so this week there was the hateful anti-trans directive that was released when, or that was written and and affirmed by the attorney general whose name is Paxton. Thank you. I was, my brain kept saying Peacock and I apparently did not write it down, but (laughs) where do you even start when people are attacking the supportive families? I'm at a loss as to what to do with that, but I'm sorry. Let me back up before we go into this conversation because we had a petition. We do have a petition. The title of it is Confirm Judge Jackson. And it is an open petition to the entire Senate for her to make it through the confirmation process and encourage your representatives, those that end up being on the confirmation committee, but that she gets approved and she makes it through because I think she has a lot to offer the court. And the call sign for that petition is P is in Peter, O is in octopus, C is in cat, F is in Frank, T is in Tom, P is in Peter. And you can sign on to that and you can encourage your friends and family to sign on to it. But if that petition doesn't say what you want to say on the subject of Judge Jackson's nomination, you can send your own letter and you can turn that letter into a petition that you can then send out into the world and ask friends and family to sign on to as well. Thanks, Susan. So I'm sorry, back to Texas. Yeah, I can um, I can talk a little bit about the Texas bill. I can't in, in any sort of like official capacity, yeah. but I have thoughts on this. I started earlier discussing how what happens when bullies go unchecked or how boundaries are being tested. I think Abbott started this stuff. This has been going along a long time, but in July when they put forth this anti-trans bill for sports and not allowing people of uh, who are identifies as trans to compete in sports because they're there to quote unquote protect the girls and the interests of the girls. I think that in many ways I feel came out of nowhere, but this idea too that once that passed and then it went into law in January and again, sort of unchallenged, not paid attention to, a lot going on. The next step in that is exactly what we're seeing now. Now it's this concept that they're going to come after parents of people who are identifying as trans because that is something that he thinks he can get away with and in all likelihood will get away with in in the state. So I think, and this ties into our next conversation about Putin, but it's this idea that there's a vigilance that I feel we lose when we have the comfort of thinking that there's somebody in the White House who is a little bit more in line with what our preferences may be. And in fact, it's that danger of that comfort or that leniency or that whatever it is that a lot of the really long lasting permanent damage takes root and actually is able to get traction. So in terms of what's happening in Texas, it's this idea that my only hope, and this is going to be a very odd instance where Athena is going to sound mildly optimistic. My only hope is this idea that um, kids these days, the kids are all right. The students trans issues, which probably would not have been on the forefront of the minds of these young voters in in the state of Texas, are now paying attention and are now trying to educate themselves and figure out what's going on. And my hope is that this will eventually backfire because this divisive type of language is increasingly, I have to hope, increasingly going to be the downfall of the Republican Party and fascists all over the world. One of the things I appreciate, thank you, is how there have been 
uh, lo- local district and county attorneys that have already immediately come out and told them where they could stick it. And educators as well are looking at how they can be supportive. You know, there are collections of educators that are looking at how they can be supportive to students because you're literally talking about criminalizing families for seeking what's best best for their kids. And this is the same group who will say sideways things like, oh, I'm in trouble for thought crimes. Well, you are literally making a crime out of loving and supporting your kid and taking care of them in the way that you see fit. The same thing, the same arguments that they're having against things like critical race theory and stuff like that, it, it does not apply when you're dealing with trans children. I can decide what's right for my kids and I can also decide what's right for your kids because I know better than you do. And I think that that's an excellent point, Mel, because Abbott is establishing this pattern with enacting rules and legislation that brings the general public in as the enforcers. The same thing with the abortion bill that he that they signed in, looking to the public, looking to your neighbors to report you. You know, the articles that I was reading, there was a, a mom and she was in several of the articles and she said that, you know, she looked at her Facebook and her all of her notifications on her phone the morning after it came out and people were saying to her, I've already reported your family to whatever Texas's version is of the Department of Children and Families. And that has to be, and she said they'd already had to move once because where they lived before was not safe for her child. And that just, that has to just be horrific to have to look that in the eye every day. And with regard to Department of Children and Family Services, that's an organization here in Florida that I bump into a lot in my professional life. And they already have so much on their plates, the caseloads that these people have. And, and to add this on top of it, that you have to go and police a family for the medical decisions that they're making for their child so that their child can be who their child feels they are. And that is just appalling. It's appalling. When I think about the arguments against transition care, when we start talking about kids and and especially when we start talking about hormone blockers and things like that, which for the record has not been limited to trans kids. I want to be very clear. Like there are kids who go through uh, precocious puberty and in those instances, they do offer hormone blockers. And at no point in time, I have yet to hear this grand public outcry against that. And that is just a basic acceptable treatment. So this is not about care for hormone blockers or a care about transitional care. This is an actual attack on trans children. And so when you look at before the issues that we were dealing with, and we let's be very honest, still deal with because just because there is more support now, that doesn't mean it's adequate. That doesn't mean that these children are getting adequate support. So let's be very clear. But when we look at what we were dealing with before when these kids had no options and the type of mental health care that was needed that they didn't receive, or rather than health care that would support them, it was conversion care, things like that. We talked about, we had the show a couple of months back about congregate care and how one of those, that's also something that queer and trans children would often, you know, find themselves, find themselves in. So when we look at that, I have to ask what benefit people think this brings to to target children. We're literally talking about targeting children because whatever you think about their parents and whatever whatever consequences you think their parents would suffer, these children are ultimately going to have to go somewhere. What happens to them next? What is the end game here? And there is no real end game. It's one of those cases where the cruelty is just the point. Whether you agree that you're being cruel or not, this is the point. It's cruelty, it's control, it's back to controlling bodies. It's back to this obsession we have with policing bodies in this country. And the idea that rubbing up against the fact that gender is a construct in the first place, but it's a lie that people believe, you know, that there's only two genders and there's no room for anything else. And it just supports that that false narrative. It's also, I mean, it's a good segue for the overall conversation. It's also about power. 
and the loss of power and the attempt to retain power. Like Susan, what you were saying as you were talking about that, this is straight out of an authoritarian playbook to enlist the help of the quote unquote public to police and enforce something that is actually the whole goal is designed to retain power and centralize power. That's exactly what we're seeing. And kids as a result, and when we put our feelings into that, because we have so many feelings about that, but we got to look at it from their perspective, it's collateral damage. They don't care. It's about power, which is actually very disturbing. Absolutely. We're dealing with power. We're dealing with sustaining status quo. I think there's always going to be a dogmatic element to these certain topics, like threatening our understanding of gender is going to ignite a particular segment of the population. And I agree, this these, these themes are related. It's this idea that you have this oligarchical society in Russia that is reclaiming Ukraine as some type of bygone days where the Soviet Union was a imperial powerhouse. It's trying to reclaim that, trying to establish a, weren't things better back when things were much clearer and, and black and white for folks? And we're not really living in that world anymore. And these vestiges of power, or people trying to remain in that power or assert that power and control is is a struggle that we're continuing to face. And in a private conversation with somebody, I recently said, like, a lot of these issues are really toxic masculinity or white supremacy at a global scale. It's this idea if we're not holding these people accounted for, uh, accountable for what they do, well, we're going to continue to somehow say, well, boys will be boys, or like this is just how politics work. It's not. We're not going to. We're not going to be able to really address the systemic issues that are cropping this up in every in every sphere. And when we start dealing with, um, and I remember my thought, when we start dealing with power structures and how people get in a position to oppress, you. Ha- you have to have a certain amount of support from the oppressed class. So you have to have, so when you put these things in place, for example, you snitch on your neighbor who you know got knew had an abortion this week. Next week, you snitch on your neighbor who has a trans child who they're supporting and seeking care for next week. What do they get you to switch on, snitch on the week after? How much closer do they have to get to your rights before you care about it and before you see the danger? And more times than not, people don't really realize it until it's at their door. And that's part of where we are now. And in terms of seeing the train coming, we can move on to the topic that Athena started leading us into with Russia invading the Ukraine. And how I think that's been something that has been on all of our minds, partially because we all remember the I'd like you to do me a favor conversation during the first impeachment of of the last president. So I just like to kick this off and really just kind of hot potato it to somebody else to kind of give your initial thoughts on what your observations are, what your thoughts are, what your what your feelings are about this current conflict in Ukraine. I'll start by saying it's it's not something that I'm well versed in. I, I don't necessarily understand how we got here, but it's frightening nonetheless. You know, and when you start throwing around nuclear, when when that word becomes part of the conversation too. And to what end? Because whoever pushes the button first, that's not the end of it. Somebody else pushes the button in response. And so, you know, like in the back of my mind, nuclear weaponry, although so many countries have it, I've never thought that it would actually be used because the consequences, it, you know, it's not limited. It's not a missile that hits a particular area. It's a missile that annihilates a population. And, and so that is incredibly frightening to me to think about that. I think it's one of those things where Americans, we can be so focused on our own domestic problems and, and the the American exceptional exceptionalism can almost lead you to believe that we're the only nation in the world, which is a problem when it's time to discuss other things or understand other concepts that are going on internationally that we have a hand in. Christine, I'm going to pick on you because I would love to um, hear your take because we talked a little bit off channel about this and I would, you know, I would really love to hear your take 
on or your your observations? Thank you. So definitely not a Ukraine or Russia expert, but you know, background in international relations. Last two decades focused on uh, U.S.-China relations and seeing some similarities in that. Um, whether it is China or Russia or another authoritarian country, you are looking at, and actually, Mel, it's so interesting that you mentioned that point. You're looking at countries that look at us not paying attention to them. It's the complacency that we have because of, you know, our ability to be so insular by choice that allows these regimes to get away with what we see. And so for those of us who follow that, it's kind of like the international relations world is always on the fringes of domestic politics. There is a lot of important things, understandably, that we all have to focus on at home, but just know that they're counting on that right? We are so predictable. And our ability to live in a free society is also their ability to manipulate us and the situation, especially with technology these days. And the freedom of information we have also leaves us open to a lot of disinformation, which is exactly a big reason of how we got here. Um, So that comes to mind. And I look at things from the lens of, you know, I know it sounds very cliche, but this is authoritarianism versus democracy, free societies versus absolute control. And this is what we are dealing with. From that perspective, you are looking at a guy who is straight out of Cold War Soviet era. He was a KGB guy, right? Who saw the disempowerment of his old world order that he was part of. And this is kind of like, if you want to put it in very simple terms, This is his revenge. He's been plotting and he's been planning. This is not by accident. It's been a long time coming. It's it's catching us by surprise as Americans because of what I just said. We are focused on our own issues, but no, it's been in his playbook. And what concerns me on so many levels is, and this is actually the important part, and if you want to have the optimism that Athena mentioned even in our last uh, conversation, it is so important for us to at least, like, okay, we haven't been paying attention. It's so important for all of us to be paying attention now. And it's so important for all of us to catch up where we feel we can and understand that other countries are looking at this and how they react in the future to their own conflicts and their own issues. And I'm speaking from a very personal perspective. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, you know, I I don't hide the fact that I am Taiwanese and that in the past year, it's not by accident that you have heard so much more about Taiwan than you have in the past decade, because we seem to be attached to every other major conflict that comes up in the context of Wow, what is China gonna do now? China and I if I if I had a dollar for every time I saw a tweet that says, look what's happening in Afghanistan, Taiwan's next. Look what's happening in Ukraine, Taiwan's next. But to understand where that's coming from is this awareness that this is we're back to a situation in in the world where who's going to whose sphere of influence is going to win at the end, right? It puts a spotlight on how fragile things really are right now. One of the things that I do want to mention, because since the attack, there have been sanctions placed on Russia. And I just want to talk a bit, I just want to kind of lay out a bit on what those sanctions are from the U.S. So there are blocks on technology that are going to limit their ability to advance in military and aer- in the military and aerospace sector. There are also going to be sanctions on banks and on uh, billionaires that they believe to be corrupt and people who have close ties to the Kremlin. 13 major state companies are cut off from raising money in the U.S. And then there's also, because there's been support from Belarus, we know that Lukashenko has been supportive of Russia. So there are two dozen Belarusian individuals and companies that have also been sanctioned by the U.S. And that is not even getting into the sanctions that they've uh, experienced. They're experiencing some from places like Japan, Germany, the fact that they're beginning to be restricted from airspace and, and the potential SWIFT option of having Russian banks removed from that inter- from SWIFT, the international like money exchange type thing that I'm not smart enough to completely understand and, 
am just learning about this week. But I mean, that's that's the thing. That's part of how I'm a kid who was born and raised in America. I have an American education and there is a certain limitation that I have to learn about things as I go into adulthood. And it is important to look up. It's the information about Russia hacking the grid in 2018. That's still on the internet. You should probably read about that. The information about Trump attempting to extort almost Ukraine. You should read about that. Like these are the things even you can't, we can't make up the past, but we can learn now so that we understand how America fits in the international scene. The other thing that I I, want to mention that it has just stricken me a bit is, well, there are actually two things that have really stricken me, three things, sorry. The first thing was a comment, and it was something that I actually saw shared from from Twitter, where uh, one of the Russian soldiers were like, they look just like us. We don't know who to shoot at. Which, when you think about how the implication of that and and realize it's because they're not fighting black or brown people, (laughs) they don't know who to shoot at is just mind blowing to me. Kind of telling on yourself, right? (laughs) You are saying the quiet part incredibly loud there. Out loud. Yes. The second thing was, I don't think Americans know how war works. And specifically, they don't know how it works when America invades countries because they're like, oh, it's these, there's this romanticized view of what's going on in Ukraine. And you see, there was the photo of the newlywed couple who got married early and they got their, their guns. There's the video of the Ukrainian president who is pointing out how his heads of state are with him. They're out there and they, they're fighting. This is what happens in other countries too. This is what war looks like when it's on your soil. And there's this detachment that Americans have from that because number one, we don't have to look at that. And number two, the more frightening thing is if that were a thing that were to happen in America, I don't trust Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell to pick up guns. Like that's not, that's not something that we can relate to because in this country, the first people who are fighting for freedom are the people who are poor, people who are disadvantaged. This has been a lot for me to digest. And Athena, I don't know if I've gotten your comments on this at all yet? So I have a lot of thoughts about the situation. I am a student of European history, full disclosure. So I always come to it from a lens of how did we get here? And this is centuries in the making. I think Ukraine, its people, its culture, its civilization outdates what we consider of mo- modern Russia, so to speak. And they, those precarious border countries have always been the front lines of the East versus West discussion. Russia and the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, sphere of economic power versus the West, which is EU, NATO, and our quote unquote Western way of life. Ukraine has aligned with that, but the United States is United States. I would say the West has been rattling Putin's cage for decades. This is a direct result of a a variety of different sanctions and poor political plays, in my opinion. But I think to the extent that what was discussed earlier, we have such a limited understanding as a country. I mean, not that there are absolute experts and people who know about the situation much more than anyone. But if you're talking about the court of public opinion or you're talking about just general American understanding of wars, we are so short-sighted to what you discussed, like 2018, 2014, Trump's impeachment in trying to, we held hostage Ukrainian resources to defend themselves and protect themselves with the hope that on the other end of the line, Trump was going to be able to convince the president, their leadership there to give us information about his political opponent. Like that was an impeachable offense. So like all of these things lead up to where we're at now. And to what was spoken about earlier, the only one I feel who has a really good grasp of the long game here is Vladimir Putin. He is playing on our weaknesses and waiting it out and completely taking advantage of these infrastructure weaknesses in our own systems. And the lot has been said about like where we can go now. And I, I think nobody wants the nuclear option, obviously. The former, other former Soviet Union countries are like, what is going on? Are we next? There's a destabilization that's happening, which is exactly what Putin wants. But, and because of our, and this is where I think, I don't attribute a lot of this to this idea of like oil and resources. But that is exactly how you capture the attention of the United States by saying, okay, it looks like our oil prices are going to go up. 
and this is now going to directly affect everyone's lives. And all the more reason that we need to see this intersectionality of how removing our dependence on fossil fuels is critical to, to our own domestic security and stability worldwide. So just kind of throwing that idea out there too. But also this idea that we are now, I feel like we're playing a game of chess and like Biden's learning to play Connect Four at the moment. We are surrounded and completely, we, we have no very few cards to play at this point. And Putin waited for a very good time in order to do all of this. And the rest of the world is looking at us to figure out a way out of this. And nobody really has the answers right now. And I can't help but think how directly tied this is to the Russian invasion of Crimea and how he got away with it then. No accountability. The next time they come back, it's just going to be even stronger and more robust. Now, again, there's I just mentioned a lot. The last thing I will say, because I really, this is stream of thought here. The last thing I'll say on this is this idea that there were like four other airstrikes that took place last week. So Russia and Ukraine obviously is a major one. And there's the, the political theater, of what's happening where the East meets West and the gateway to Europe, like that's coming knocking on Europe's door very closely. Makes a lot of people a little, World War II was not that long ago. A lot of rightful people are concerned that this could blow up into something much larger. But Israel attacked Damascus this week. We had some issues, Saudi Arabia attacked Yemen and the United States did airstrikes in Somalia. So again, it's not like either or. I, keep, I think we absolutely can be outraged about all of it. But I do want us to understand that like what I want us to think about, what I invite us to, what about this Ukraine-Russia thing is really like capturing the attention of the media to the extent it is and why. And just unpacking that I think will go a long way to helping us understand what some of the failings are either with our leadership or our media or how we view society as a whole. And and those things I feel as though they work hand in hand. When you say political game, game before the sanctions were placed, the U.S. bought $350 million of resources from Russia. There's a kind of push and pull because we're still playing this. There's still going to be this game of, okay, what is most beneficial to me before I do whatever? What is, how is this going to work for me, how do I play this game and give the appearance of doing something? And it, it's like the old adage, you give a man a rope and he thinks he's a cowboy. And that's what we're looking at right now. I wanted to talk a bit too about like the disinformation that we have to do, that we're looking at and, and kind of close us out a little bit before, or rather before we close out. There was an issue in with Nigerian students who were in Ukraine attempting to seek refuge in Poland. And they were being delayed and denied. And ultimately that has been corrected and fixed And the embassy in, in Nigeria has contacted the embassy in Ukraine. And so now everyone is being let in. But even with that, where there's still, it's mind blowing that there's still a, we're still able to find a time for anti-blackness in anything. But outside of that, when, when we, look at how the, I was looking at how on the internet that was, that actual scenario was being twisted in all kinds of ways and ultimately being placed on the weight of the Ukrainian government who is trying to defend itself and not really the discussion, not really covering, okay, this Ukraine doesn't have control over Poland completely. And just the way little things like this distract from the actual conversation. We talk about this, is this what our fourth, fifth week in a row, where we talk about how talking about the thing that isn't the thing distracts us from actually getting to the core of the real issue. But that's also part of it. That's the awareness that that is, it's not to say that these issues don't exist. It's to say that in addition to these issues, we've got, we've got a a government that understands how to exploit our divisions and so is just adding onto it, right? So it's not dismissing that those issues exist. It's just this elevated awareness that they also know and know how to leverage that to their favor. A lot of these things will have a kernel of truth to them or have, have truth that exists in another context. And we live in this kind of microwave popcorn information society where we look it up, we get it, and we're not always doing the deep dive to see what we shouldn't be taking at face value. And that's just something when you're dealing with foreign policy, it's gonna take more than reading a tweet. I will just encourage everyone, find not only news sites and magazines that you trust, books still exist, 
And I guarantee you they are still awesome. <laughs> and so you should probably start reading them before they start burning them because that's where this country is headed. Uh, no, I can't, I can't. But that's gonna wrap it for us. But before we wrap it, we still have two petitions. First, Susan, can you give us a run through of the Ukraine petition? And then can you go back and mention the petition for about against the Texas anti-trans directive? Sure, sure. So we have three separate petitions on the issue of the Ukraine. And so the first one is entitled more sanctions against Russia for invading Ukraine. And it's really simple. And just imploring our president, our government to just do what it can to relieve that situation by sanctions, whatever means it finds that are viable. And so the call sign for this one is P is in Peter, F is in Frank, G is in good, R is in Robert, F is in Frank, J is in jelly. And so if you send that call sign to ResistBot at 50409, you can send that petition to the president and then invite, as always, your friends and family to sign on to it. The next one that we have is called Swift Action in Ukraine. And the call sign for that is P is in Peter, F is in Frank, X is in xylophone, Z is in zebra, Q is in cute. No, not Q is in cute. Q is in quiet. H is in holiday. And send that call sign and you can sign on to Swift Action in Ukraine. And again, it's imploring Congress to take the steps that it can take that and explore the options that it has at its disposal. And then the third one that we have about this is seize the assets of Russian oligarchs now. And so that is happening. It's happening a lot. It's happening in corners where you don't necessarily think about. The owner of the Chelsea football team, he has stepped down and handed over the club to the trust that exists for it. So, you know, that's happening all over the place. And the call sign one for the seize assets of Russian oligarchs now is P is in Peter, A is in Apple, G is in good, K is in kitchen, V is in victory, V is in victory. And again, if any of these petitions don't say what you want to say, please write your own, send it to your legislators, the president, Congress, and lobby your friends and family to sign on to it as well. And then the last thing that we have going back to what's going on in Texas, and this petition is called Protect Texas Youth Denounce Abbott's Directive. And it is to state governors and you can send it to whomever, your state representatives, Congress, the president to, you know, what's happening in Texas is deplorable. And the fact that the government there is stepping into the medical room with the family and their children is just, it's deplorable. The call sign for that one is P as in Peter, D as in David, C as in cat, B as in boy, I, V as in victory. And again, send these off and invite your friends and families to sign on too. Awesome. Thank you so much, Susan. And while we have you here, you want to give us your parting shot? Where can we find you? We all know the election season is kicking off. So we're working locally with our DEC on get out the vote efforts across the state. 22 and 24 are going to be hugely important, especially here in the state of Florida. So if you're not registered to vote, vote. If you're not registered to vote by mail, vote by mail get that done. And I just wanted to make a a little observation, you know, as we speak about Judge Brown's nomination, today is the 100th anniversary of the Supreme Court opinion that upheld the woman's right to vote. And so that was 100 years ago today. And it just seems, you know, in a country that has been in existence for hundreds of years for women to have only been voting for 100. But without that, Judge Brown would not be where she is now. And so I'm just really thankful that the Supreme Court upheld that amendment to the Constitution. Thanks, Susan. Thanks so much. And we've got Christine. You want to give us your parting shot? Yep. Just uh, do not outsource your critical thinking to the media. Do your own research. So thank you. Thank you. And last but not least, Athena. Hi, everybody. Just calling to attention that all leaders should be questioned and voted in democratically to register to vote. Make sure you know who is speaking for you is actually speaking for your interests and not. 
I'd just like to, for the sake of balance, explain that there were two representatives from the Democratic Party this week who put on the table the deportation of Russian international students from the United States. There's a lot of political theater going on right now, so I encourage everybody to continue to stay vigilant, read what you can from like good, citable sources, and we'll see you next time. Stay tuned. Thanks. Thanks, Athena. And that is our show. Thank you so much for joining us this week. If you want to learn more, if you want to volunteer, if you want to donate, you can go to resist.bot. If you would like to create your own petition, text RESIST to 50409 and our handy dandy bot will walk you through. Rosie is waiting for you. For donations, we have new donors this week. So just want to give a shout out to George in Santa Clara, California, who is his focus is on climate change. Thank you to Patrick from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Nathaniel from Brooklyn, New York is in support of a free and independent Ukraine. And Michael from Centennial, Colorado. More support for Ukraine, stricter sanctions against Putin and Russia. We will be back next week, one o'clock Eastern with another discussion. I am, I think, I feel like last week I said what the discussion was, but the world is what it is. So... It's how does the saying go? We make plans and God laughs. But we, I do know that we'll be here next week with another roundtable discussion with the all girl, me and the all girl band. If you want to subscribe to our podcast, again, go to resistbot.live so you can find us. The, the podcast will be up tomorrow morning. If you have comments that you want to add on, remember the hashtag livebotters. And since I clearly need another cup of coffee, I will say goodbye to you and see you next week. Thanks, guys. Stay safe. ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple. iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. You can also direct message ResistBot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more resources, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating robust public policy or voter turnout campaigns. And we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. ResistBot is a non-profit social welfare organization built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. ResistBot Live is moderated by Melanie Dion. Our regular panel includes Athena Foulet, Christine Liu, Susan Stutz, and Dr. Joseph Kuhill. Thank you for listening.